Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today. Today, I want to talk about a global flood, and we've done an episode in the past talking about the flood and the issues that pose a problem with it being global. Today, I want to talk more about the apologetic responses to a global flood. And I want to start by recognizing, and it's important that we set this up with a recognition that I'm going to borrow heavily from a document on the website ldsdiscussions.com backslash flood LDS Discussions blog, and this is titled The Global Flood and the Book of Mormon, Abraham and Moses. It appears this was released on September 11th, 2020, and uh, the this blog article does a beautiful job of walking the reader through the apologetic responses and why they don't hold up to addressing a global flood and simply saying, well, maybe it was a local flood. And uh, and so I will certainly share that article in the links, but I thought it deserved some sort of uh, audio rendition. And so I will be borrowing heavily from that document. Let's begin by saying that Mormonism, like most of Christianity, and again, most of Christianity, meaning the sects that are taking a very literal approach to the biblical canon. There are lots of Christian denominations, the majority of them, by the way, that impose that, look, this this Bible is this perfect thing. And if we're misunderstanding it, if we're if we're misinterpreting it, it's it's on our end. It's not it's not the Bible itself. It is it is this perfect thing that that can't really be challenged in terms of the stories it tells. They are historical when it says they are historical. And things happened the way they said they happened. And as most of you know as listeners, we're always challenging our assumptions. So first, let's start off with the idea that LDS canon imposes a global flood. We can begin with Genesis chapter 7, verse 21. All flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. Remember this. God said, Noah, get ready. Great waters are coming. It's going to rain. Build a ship. On that ship, take as many of you as you can uh, among your family and uh, take uh, two of each animal and then take seven of each of the clean animals. And uh, I'm going to rain down upon the earth in such a way that that you're going to need this ship to survive. And so Noah went forth and built this gigantic ship. We're told the dimensions of it. And then two of every animal get on that ship. And and those rains came. And then God permitted man, woman, and child to drown to death as the entire earth was covered. And then that ship came to rest upon a mountain. And Noah and the, and the eight upon that ship eight people upon that ship and all the animals then got off and restarted human life. There are flood myths all across history. You can go to Wikipedia and you can type in flood myth and then go to the Wikipedia and read all of that. We'll again include those links as well. The writer of the article on LDS Discussions points out that the Epic of Gilgamesh is perhaps the most famous flood myth that Noah's story was inspired from. And this was written about 1800 BCE. In this Epic of Gilgamesh, which is much older than Noah's flood story, by the way, if you ask biblical scholars and literary scholars the age of these texts, it is uh, collectively agreed upon that the Epic of Gilgamesh is older by about at least 800 years. 
it was written around 1800 BC. Noah's story would have been written around 1000 BC. And it's important to recognize that the Epic of Gilgamesh has tons of parallels to uh, the Bible stories of Adam and Eve, and then specifically, as we'll talk about today, uh, Noah's Ark and the Global Flood. In the story, there's a a man who's created uh, from the soil by a god, and he lives in a natural setting amongst the animals. He's introduced to a woman who tempts him. In both stories of Adam and Eve, as well as in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the man accepts the food from the woman. He covers his nakedness. He must leave his former realm and unable to return. The presence of a snake that steals a plant of immortality from the hero later in the epic is another point of similarity. Regarding the global flood myth, the parallels are just as striking. According to Babylonian professor Andrew George, who wrote a book translating the Epic of Gilgamesh, noted that the flood story in Genesis mirrors Gilgamesh so closely that, uh, that few can doubt that the account in Genesis is derived from this story of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh, the great gods create a secret plan to flood the world, but one of the gods tells the man to demolish his house and to build a boat to keep both people and animals alive. The boat is then constructed with six decks divided into seven and nine compartments, and the boat was loaded with all the relatives and craftsmen of the boat, along with all the beasts and animals of the field. The boat then is launched, and the storm lasts six days and six nights, with the storm pounding on the seventh day. The boat then landed at, at a mount, and the man releases a dove and then a raven to see if the waters had dried upon the earth. Then he sent the livestock in different directions to replenish the earth and offered animals in sacrifice to the gods. That's a quote directly from the article. While there are, of course, differences in Noah's story, it, like again, no two stories are going to be the same, even as one writer is borrowing heavily from another writer. There's always going to be differences, and we should expect those. The similarities in light of that, though, are too many and too closely related to deny that there's a connection. In Gilgamesh, a man is instructed by a god to build a ship to weather an impending flood to cleanse the earth of all living beings, and this man seeks to save all of his relatives and animals. In both stories, the boat lands on the side of a mountain, meaning that the water from the flood was incredibly high, a global flood of some sort, right? If if the tallest spot in your area is where the boat lands, then the flood had to be extreme for that to be the landing place. And the man sent a dove and then a raven until they knew the water receded far enough to return the animals to land. And then again, sacrifices are made to God for being saved. It can be argued that both accounts of Gilgamesh and Noah's uh, story and in uh, Genesis uh, derive or come from the same myth. And and that may be, but it doesn't negate the point that there is an older flood story, much older than Noah's story, that all these other flood stories, specifically the Epic of Gilgamesh and of Noah's Ark, that they derive from. There are other similar flood stories within world uh, history among other civilizations, but many of the stories uh, in Genesis are directly connected to or extremely similar similar to Babylonian myths. And it seems apparent that the writers of Genesis would have been very familiar with these myths among the Babylonians um, and that these biblical stories were compiled long after stories such as the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, I need to say here, you can go back to our previous episode on the flood, 
probably 150 episodes ago, maybe more. And, and I'll link that in the footnotes as well. But it needs to be understood that there are hundreds of logical reasons, scientific reasons, theological reasons. There, there's just so many reasons why a global flood was absurd and impossible. And we need to cover at least a few of these here. And there's a, there's a document at a website, talkorigins.org, and they have one at, on Noah's Ark. And I think it's the most well-laid-out argument for why a global flood would be simply absurd. Uh, absurd sorry. And I want to note there's 11 facets, 11 directions that this article goes into um, that essentially decimates the possibility of a global flood. They are, one, the building of the ark, two, the gathering of the animals, three, the fitting the animals aboard, Number four, caring for the animals. Number five, the flood itself. Number six, the implications of a flood. Number seven, what a global flood would have produced in the geological record. Number eight, species survival and post-flood ecology. Number nine, species distribution and diversity. Number 10, historical aspects. And number 11, logical, philosophical, and theological points. And in each every in each one of those facets is tons of uh, problems with why a global flood just again is absurd. Number one, building the ark. Wood is not the best material for shipbuilding. It is not enough that a ship be built to hold together. It must also be sturdy enough that the changing stresses don't open gaps in its hull. Wood simply is not strong enough to prevent separation between the joints, especially the heavy seas that the ark would have encountered. The longest wooden ships in modern seas are about 300 feet. And these require reinforcing with iron straps and leak so badly they must be constantly pumped. The ark was 450 feet long. We get that from Genesis 6.15. Could an ark that size be made seaworthy? And again, we have to understand rational thinking. It is going to be easy for you, if you're a believer, as you listen to these points, to go, but what if? But what if we make an allowance? But God is all-powerful. What if this happens? And Every time the most reasonable conclusion is that it hasn't been done before and it can't be done, and you come along and go, but what if you are making allowances? And if you make one allowance or two allowances, the argument becomes deeply less reasonable and rational. But when you make a hundred allowances, your argument becomes absurd and you no longer have space to really impose that at every at every jot and tittle at every single turn at every single twist in the story you need some miraculous occurrence or some uh, thing to happen that seems uh, irrational and unreasonable to the average mind so number two gathering the animals bringing all kinds of animals together in the vicinity of the ark presents significant problems could animals have traveled from elsewhere? Elsewhere, We need to recognize that animals have certain habitats they live in and they have certain requirements they need. So for instance, some animals like sloths and penguins can't travel over land very well at all. Sloths are made fun of because of how slow they are. Penguins are wobbling on their two feet and, and so much land would need to be covered and so much area would need to be swam that there's just no way that we can make it reasonable that all kinds of animal, every kind of animal, makes its way to the ark. Some animals, like koalas and many insects, require a special diet. How did they bring it along? Remember, koalas eat eucalyptus. 
So did God just perform another miracle and allow the koalas to eat something else? How, how did we get eucalyptus onto the ark? And if we make space that, okay, well, maybe Noah's Ark started in Australia. Well, okay, maybe. But then you have to come up with uh, any other animal that has a special diet that lives in some other place where their diet is only available where they are at for that animal to uh, also have gotten its food uh, brought with it. Some cave-dwelling anthropods can't survive in less than 100% relative humidity. Some animals like dodos must have lived on islands. If they didn't, they would have been easy prey for other animals. When mainland species like rats or pigs are introduced to islands, they drive many indigenous species to extinction. Those species would not have been able to survive such competition if they lived where mainland species could get at them before the flood. We also need to understand the other side of the coin, which is when Noah's Ark lands, isn't it strange how the penguins get from wherever they are, Mount Ariat, and get all the way back to uh, their natural habitat and these penguins somehow waddle and swim all the way. And why is it that all marsupials banded together and after Noah's Ark lands, all animals with, with chest pockets band together as, as a tr new tribe and make their way back to Australia? These kinds of things become silly. Could animals have all lived near Noah? Some creationists suggest that the animals need not have traveled far to reach the Ark. Um, but this doesn't make sense. There's a reason why Gila monsters, yaks, and quetzals don't all live together in a temperature climate. They can't survive there, at least not long without special care. Organisms have preferred environments outside of which they are at a deadly disadvantage. Most extinctions are caused by destroying the organism's preferred environments. The creationists who propose all the species living together in a uniform climate are effectively proposing the destruction of all environments but one. Not many species would have survived that. How was the ark loaded? Getting all the animals aboard the ark presents a, logic, a logistical problem, which, while not impossible, is highly impractical. Noah had only seven days to load the ark. If only 15,764 animals were aboard the ark, and this is based on the theory that like kind were placed upon the ark, and then after the ark landed, an extremely quick evolution occurred among those like kinds. It means that one animal must have been loaded every 38 seconds without let up. Since there were likely more animals to load, the time pressures would have been even worse. Imagine that, loading a kind of animal every 38 seconds. That becomes uh, absurd. And again, you're gonna need to make special allowances. Fitting the animals aboard the ark, this ship uh, has to accommodate the people aboard. It has to accommodate each of the animals. It has to keep um, animals in their own kind of space. There also has to be food and water for each of the animals. And again, upon this 450 foot long ship, this would have been um, essentially impossible. And there have been um, there have been like diagrams and and this like the math and science of this idea has been carried out to its end within the article. I don't want to go over all of that. I would just point you to it, suggest you read this. But there are other things. Certain animals have special diets. Certain animals require their food to be fresh. Uh, how do you preserve food? How do you have pest control? Uh, how do you handle the ventilation on the ark? Uh, what about sanitation? What about exercise or animal handling? What about the manpower for feeding and watering these animals? How about the flood itself? 
there are problems with a vapor canopy, uh, a hydroplate. Um, there are people who suggest that the water came through comet. Uh, but each of these, when it comes to the science of what it would take for the Earth, which has a constant amount of water in it, and that water is uh, evaporates into the atmosphere and then comes back down as rain, the amount of anomalies that would be required for the Earth to be covered by water and what that would do to the orbit of the planet, the weight of the planet, and disrupt its place within space. Again, the science has been done, but it is absurd. What about the implications of a flood? Why is there no evidence of a flood in the ice core series? Uh, how are polar ice caps even possible? Why did the flood not leave traces on the seafloor? Why is there no evidence of a flood in tree ring data? We have tree rings that go back more than 10,000 years with no evidence of a uh, catastrophe flood during that time. What about the production? This is number seven. What about the production of a geological record? Why are geological eras consistent worldwide? How was the fossil record sorted in an order convenient for evolution? I'm going to stop there, but there are hundreds of other problems. And if any of this uh, language that I just shared is doesn't make sense, you're like, I don't even know what that means, Bill then I'm gonna suggest you read the article because under each of these sentences that I read is a scientific explanation of why these things don't add up. Think about the plant life on the earth. Many plants, seeds and all, would be killed by submerging them for a few months. This is especially true if they were soaked in salt water. Some mangroves, coconuts, and other coastal species have seed which could be expected to survive the flood itself, but what of the rest? Most seeds would have been buried under many feet, even miles of sediment. This is deep enough to prevent sprouting. Most plants require established soils to grow. How did all the fish survive? Some require cool, clear water. Some need brackish water. Some need ocean water. Some need water even saltier. A flood would have destroyed at least some of these habitats. How did sensitive marine life such as coral survive? How did, de how did diseases survive? How did short-lived species survive? How could more than a handful of species survive in a devastated habitat? How did predators survive? How could more than a handful of species survive random influences that affect populations? How did Number nine, species distribution and diversity. How did animals get to their present ranges? We talked for a moment about the uh, marsupials and we talked about the penguins. How were ecological interdependence preserved as animals migrated from Mount Ariat? Why are so many animals found only in limited ranges? Why is inbreeding depression not a problem in most species? Historical aspects. Why is there no mention of the flood of the records of the Egyptians or the Mesopotamian civilizations which existed at the time? In other words, we have older histories of older civilizations and there is no mention of a global flood. How did the human population rebound so fast? How do other flood myths vary so greatly from the Genesis account? And why do we expect Genesis to be so accurate? Number 11, there's logical, philosophical, and theological. And again, I'll let you go into all of those. But again, I would read this article. If you believe in a global flood and you want to be a logical, rational person, I would challenge you to understand these data points and then to have a conversation about how you make allowances that all of these things are sorted out and are handled and there are solutions. It should be noted that even LDS apologists such as Fair Mormon, for instance, 
uh, seem to agree with the science and the logic that a flood is absurd. For instance, they say, without a doubt, the flood is always treated as a global event as it is taught by church leaders. The challenge comes to those who examine scientific data showing the diversity of plant and animal life and the millennia required to achieve such diversity. The story of a global deluge then appears to be at complete odds with scientific data, which may encourage some not only to doubt the scriptures, but to even question the existence of God. Fair Mormon here is agreeing that a global flood is absurd. And they recognize that when members of the church read the data, study the data, look into the science behind it, think about the logic of it, that a global flood is simply not workable. And so what Fair Mormon does is come in and say, hey guys, there's no need to lose faith. We can hold on to a local flood and that will fit. Now it needs to be understood before we annihilate the idea of a local flood, we have to set up that Mormonism imposes a global flood. The Book of Mormon requires a global flood in Ether chapter 6, verse 7. And these are the Jaredites who come from a time that is relatively extremely close to the dating of the flood itself. They are almost speaking as those who came just after. And in Ether 6, verse 7, it says, And it came to pass that when they were buried in the deep, there was no water that could hurt them, their vessels being tight like unto a dish, and also they were tight like unto the ark of Noah. Therefore they were encompassed about by many waters. They did cry unto the Lord, and he did bring them forth again upon the top of the waters. Uh, chapter 13, verse 2. For behold, they rejected all the words of Ether, for he did truly told them of all things from the beginning of man and that after the waters had receded from off the face of this land it became a choice land above all other lands a chosen land of the lord do you understand what they're saying there let me even read verse uh, 3 here 13 verse 3 and it was the place of the new jerusalem which should come down out of the heaven and the holy sanctuary of the lord what chapter 13 verse 2 and 3 the Jaredites in their scriptural canon are imposing that the way in which the Americas became a chosen land was that the waters from the flood of Noah receded off the face of this land and it became a choice land above all other lands. Ether makes it clear that the Americas had been flooded to preserve the land for the Jaredite. This decimates the idea that it is a local flood. Now, apologetics seek to separate each of these problems from every other so that your brain never has the opportunity to see from the perspective of a 20,000 foot view. But hopefully you recognize as we go through this that our scriptures impose a global flood. We also recognize in our theology that Adam and Eve started off in Missouri. And so that Noah's Ark story starts from Missouri. We have this idea in Mormon theology and that Noah builds his ark, the rains come, his boat takes off into the water, he's on the water for all this time, and when the waters finally recede, he lands in the Middle East. But he started in the Americas. It's also a problem because Joseph Smith puts the Noah story in America with this revelation uh, about Adam and Eve being in Missouri. So this is so it's necessary to have a global flood to take Noah from Missouri to the old world. 
And without a global flood, Noah would not get from Missouri to the Old World. And without a global flood, the Americas would not be preserved for the Jaredites. And then following their destruction, the Lehites. Alma also seems to confirm a global flood in chapter 10, verse 22. Yea, and I say unto you that if it were not for the prayers of the righteous who are now in the land, that ye would even now be visited with utter destruction, yet it would not be by flood, as were the people in the days of Noah, but it would be by famine and by pestilence and the sword. The last problem for the Book of Mormon comes in 3 Nephi, where Jesus himself is repeating a verse about Noah originally in Isaiah 54, 9. Chapter 22, verse 9, For this the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. In other words, whatever Noah's flood was, we will never do a flood like that again. So have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee. That's Jesus repeating his own father or his, his own voice. Uh, the mind and will of God, and who is the God of the Old Testament but Jesus. So I have sworn that I would not be wroth with thee. Jesus himself says, look, I'm going to reiterate, we will never do a flood like that of Noah ever again upon the earth. His flood was different than any other flood. A local flood, local floods happen anywhere. But now it has to, now we have to make another allowance. It can't be a small local flood or a local flood like any other local flood. And it can't be a global flood. It now has to be a local flood of monumental size so that it is not a global flood, but it is unique from any other local flood that has ever happened. Think about that. The Book of Mormon imposes a global flood when you understand all of these scriptures and the theology and history behind them. Add that to the quotes from leaders that also impose a global flood. President John Taylor, some people talk very philosophically about tidal waves coming along, but the question is, how could you get a tidal wave out of the Pacific Ocean, say, to cover the Sierra Nevadas? But the Bible does not tell us it was a tidal wave. It simply tells us that all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upwards did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered, that it is the earth that was immersed it was a period of baptism. President Joseph F. Smith, flood was baptism of earth. Now a word as to the reason for the flood. It was the baptism of the earth, and that had to be by immersion. If the water did not cover the entire earth, then it was not baptized. For the baptism of the Lord is not pouring or sprinkling. Jeffrey R. Holland, such a special place. America needed now to be kept apart from other regions, free from the indiscriminate traveler, as well as the soldier of fortune. To guarantee such sanctity, the very surface of the earth was rent in response to God's decree. The great continent separated and the ocean rushed in to surround them. The promised place was set apart. Without habitation, it waited for the fulfillment of God's purposes. President Gordon B. Hinckley, there was the great flood and the waters covered the earth. And when, as Peter says, only eight souls were saved. Bruce R. McConkie, the Garden of Eden was in Missouri. Noah was taken to the old world by the flood. The teaching was given by Joseph Smith and is still accepted as true doctrine. Given this teaching, Mormons have to accept the flood as global, as a global phenomenon. 
Now, combine that with our current lessons. The Gospel Topics page on Noah, the church states, when the people rejected his message, God commanded Noah to build an ark, gather animals, and prepare for a flood. Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and their wives were the only people on the whole earth saved from the flood. Oh, but wait, there is more. It's not just the Book of Mormon. It's not just the quotes of leaders and the lesson material. It's also the book of Abraham. Even if you ignore all the other issues with the book of Abraham, if we look at the first chapter of the book of Abraham, it entirely hinges on a global flood. Chapter 1, verse 19, As it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee. But through thy ministry, my name shall be known in the earth forever, for I am thy God. Verse 24, when this woman discovered the land, it was under water, who afterwards settled her sons in it, and thus from Ham sprang the race which preserved the curse in the land. From the article, it explains it well. Again, to be clear, Abraham 124 states that Egypt was discovered while it was under water by the daughter-in-law of Noah, Ham, which makes clear that Egypt was found while the world was under water by a global flood. Again, from the article, as mentioned above, you can ignore all the problems with the book of Abraham, papyri, facsimiles, translation methods, and those have been detailed extensively elsewhere because the beginning of the book lets us know that it is not a historical record. There was absolutely no flooding of Egypt. While historians can illustrate more clearly as Egyptian history is much more detailed and there are no disturbance or elimination of the civilization after the pyramids were built which happened hundreds of years before a global flood supposedly occurred. In other words, Egyptian history is consistent without any interruption. There is no spot where the history stops because everybody's underwater. But oh, it doesn't stop there. The problem is reinforced in the Joseph Smith-inspired Bible translation, where he borrows heavily from Adam Clark's commentary. From the introduction to the Book of Moses, It says, the book of Moses is the prophet Joseph Smith's inspired translation of selections from the writings of Moses. It contains the words of God, which he spake unto Moses and commanded Moses to record. However, because of wickedness, many of the words and plain and precious truths he recorded were obscured or lost and thus not preserved in the book of Genesis as it has come to us. With that pretext, Moses 8:23-24 says, And it came to pass that Noah continued his preaching unto the people, saying, Hearken and give heed unto my words. Believe and repent of your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even as our fathers. And ye shall receive the Holy Ghost, and ye may have all things manifest. And if ye do not this, the floods will come in upon you. Joseph Smith leaves this verse from Genesis at the end of the book of Moses. Verse 30, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. And behold, I will destroy all flesh from off the earth. That's God talking to Noah. Now, think about it. What if God has this inside secret? I'm not going to tell Noah, but I'm actually not going to kill everyone upon the earth. I'm only going to kill the people in this local area. But the words I'm going to tell Noah will impose to him the interpretation that it's all flesh from off the earth. So you recognize that every piece of canon within Mormonism, 
all of Mormonism's sacred text imply and impose that the flood was a global flood. And it's deeply tied to our theology. It's the very teachings that our leaders have taught. It has been reiterated in every facet of Mormonism. And yet the apologists come, on, come in and say, the church does not require a belief in a global flood. Even in spite of Donald Perry's article in The Enzyme, what the church teaches is that Noah was a real prophet, that he was commanded to save his family along with a number of animals in an ark from a flood which covered his world. That sounds great. And this is from the article. That sounds great. But the problem is that if you don't believe in a global flood, you don't believe in a historical book of Mormon, a historical book of Abraham, a historical book of Moses. It's great to say this is not a requirement of members but it simply does not address the problems that the lack of a global flood inflicts on the scriptures of Mormonism. It is true that no one within reason will ask you to believe a global flood in order to continue as an active believing member, but this is word games. Such doesn't negate that a global flood has been imposed by all of Mormon canon, consistently through the rhetoric of leaders who claim to be the gatekeepers of true doctrine and who have access to God's own mind and will and through the lessons of the church. And secondly, the very historicity of Mormon sacred text and its theology, as shown above, are tied directly over and over to a global flood. But Fair Mormon and other apologists intentionally steer clear of addressing all of this in one place, allowing you, the reader or listener, to comprehend the problem in its full context. Instead, they prefer to isolate each problem alone, offering solutions that simply don't hold up when you look at the problem in its full context. Again from the article, Again, there needs to be a global flood because Joseph Smith revealed through Revelation that Adam and Eve lived in Missouri, which means that Noah needed to build the ark in America and use the global flood to get to the old war world. Fair Mormon does not address this problem, and it's a huge one. Fair then continues to push the idea that you're welcome to believe in a local flood, however you wish. Here's their quote from Fair Mormon. As demonstrated by the DNC, a belief that this flood was global in nature is not a requirement for Latter-day Saints. We are encouraged to study and teach each other science. Traditionally, many earlier members and leaders endorsed the global flood views common in society and Christendom generally. The accumulation of additional scientific information have led to some to rethink their views as to the nature of the flood. Some still believe in a global flood. Some believe in multiple floods happening over time. Some believe in a local flood. One localized to the immediate surroundings of Noah is the best explanation of the evidence. Some believe there was no flood at all. People of different views can be members in good standing. Again, seeing the sleight of hand parlor trick attempted by Fair Mormon, the problems with the flood are not about whether a member can be in good standing with church authorities, but about whether or not the scriptures of Mormonism hold up to their truth claims. The shifting of the argument to something other than the core problem is an apologetic tactic that seeks to assure those who realize the flood couldn't be global that they are welcome to believe in a thing differently but it does nothing to address the problems that it causes to the core truth claims of Mormonism. Fair concludes, as they did with other problems, that without a doubt, the flood is always treated as a global event as it is taught by church leaders. That's true, but then they ask the following. The story of a global deluge then appears to be at complete odds with scientific data, which may encourage some not only to doubt the scriptures, but to even question the existence of God. Therefore, can one create better assumptions about the nature of the flood of Noah and yet still accept what is taught in the church? You see, this is an apologetic trick. 
It's telling members not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Effectively, the idea is that if you let the problem of a global flood cause doubt within the Book of Mormon or the Book of Abraham, then you must throw out all beliefs. And this is a false choice. But this is where they are going, as you can see immediately after. Although the criticism can be directed at the LDS Church, it is really directed at anyone who believes in a literal reading of the Old and New Testament. That's Fair Mormon. LDS leaders have in the past taught the concept of a global flood based upon such a reading. We will continue to learn more line upon line as we create more effective ways to understand this issue. That's also from Fair Mormon. Sure, it's a problem for all biblical literalists. But it's exponentially a bigger issue for Latter-day Saints who claim a greater degree of truth, whose leaders have access to God, whose scriptures tie their historicity to a global flood, and whose leaders and lessons have imposed a literal global flood. Fair Mormon does try to address the problems, at least in this instance, of what a limited flood, the problems it would cause, a local flood, the problems it would cause. Quote, one limited flood explanation that has been proposed for this is that Noah built his ark and either went down the Mississippi River Valley or that he built the ark on the east coast of the North American continent. Another line of thought is that the placement of the garden on the North American continent was more of a symbolic act intended to sacralize the land, thus providing it with its own sacred history similar to that of the Old World. The truth is, however, that the biblical description of the location of the Garden of Eden does not match up with the existing Old World geography any more than it does with the New World geography. So that's the end of Fair's comment. Now sit with this. Please set Mormonism and apologetics aside and think for a moment about how rational thinking works. Rational thinking is to side with the most reasonable explanation of the data, to continually choose the less reasonable solution to questions or concerns that rise up in your life, is to be irrational and even considered batshit crazy. When we hold a belief, when we hold a belief, and that belief is important to us to the point that we don't want to let it go, regardless of whether the evidence is stacked against that belief or not, we are prone to make excuses and create loopholes and what-if allowances. But do you sense to do so is to be irrational? What stops you from changing your belief? If we're going to be rational human beings and we're going to be reasonable and we're willing to place our sacred beliefs on the sacrificial altar, then we are left with these conclusions. One, Mormonism's historicity is tied directly in a dozen ways to a literal global flood. The truthfulness of whether its scriptures are historical, whether its leaders are actual prophets in their imposed interpretation of that word, and the truthfulness of Mormonism's theology rest with a literal global flood. Its canon speaks to a global flood, its leaders testify of a global flood, its lessons preach a global flood, and its theology necessitates a global flood. Number two, a global flood is absurd. It simply didn't happen. The evidence is so overwhelming that all rational thinking people and far and wide 99% of scientists and scientific arguments impose that a global flood is absurd and irrational. And hence we are left with number three. Mormonism, whatever it is, is not what it claims. Until next time.
same Taking out my issues, never healed 